This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review podcast. It is Wednesday. We are in the throes of cardiac physiology. Daphna, holding strong? Yes, so far so good. Cool. Today, we're talking about ventricular pressure volume loop, which if you thought you were only dealing with loops in pulmonary, uh, in pulmonology, then you are wrong. There are loops in <laughs> cardiology. And I have to say, I think even on my practice, there's a lot of questions on this. They love to just like mm-hmm. say, which part of the loop is this? You know? They love it. They love it. So um, I'm going to try to spend a few minutes describing what the, the ventricular pressure volume loop looks like so that we can then have a constructive conversation about what is what. So it's a basic, imagine your basic graph. So you have an y-axis, you have an x-axis. On the x-axis, you have the left ventricular volume. And on the y-axis, you have the left ventricular pressure. And in the center, you will have what looks like a rectangle with the top, um, I think, with its top a little bit ballooned, basically. So um, that's what it looks like. Now, like any rectangle, it has four sides, four corners. And these are the ones where we will sort of live. It's like a little house. It's almost like, yeah. Yeah. Like a house on the, on the, on the shore. Part of a yeah, duplex. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that, that little rectangle really sits in the middle of the graph. It doesn't really hug the zero mark because um, there's um, the, you're always working with some form of volume. The volume in the heart never really reaches zero. You do have end systolic volume and diastolic volume. So it sits about in the middle of the graph. Now, let's talk about, um, we're going to start on point A. And point A is your lower left corner. Okay? So we're going to start from the bottom, and that's point A. And point A connects to point B via a almost horizontal line, which we'll call horizontal line 1. So. Point A is defined as your end systolic volume. It sits, it's your lowest point on the y-axis. Um, and at the end of systole, maybe you have a little bit of blood left in the ventricle, but not very much. That should make sense. And from there, we're going to go from A, which is um, the volume uh, in the left ventricle at the end of contraction, to B, which is when the mitral valve closes. So A being the end of systole, the mitral valve is going to open, unleashing the blood coming from, um, from the left atrium. Does that make sense? Now, yeah. um, okay. So, um, so while the, the, so the line going from A to B 
is almost horizontal, but not really. It has a little bit of a slope. So your the volume inside the heart goes up. So you go from A, mitral valve opens, some blood gets into the left ventricle, and B, you have mitral valve closure. Now, that's our filling period. That is our diastole. Then you have a straight line going up from B to point C. And after the mitral valve closes, you can expect that an, uh, another valve is going to open, which is the aortic valve. But there's a slight lag between mitral valve closure and aortic valve opening. And as and during that time, this is when we see that upslope, which is line number two, because at that moment, the heart is starting to pump against a closed aortic valve. And so that is what we call the isovolumic contraction. Isovolumic meaning your volume is not going to change. Nothing is leaving anything, but the fibers inside your myocardium are going to start working and both the mitral valve and the aortic valve are closed. So there's tension, but no loss of volume. And that's why on the y-axis, the LV pressure shoots up, but on the, the x-axis, the left ventricle volume stays in place. That's point C. Now at point C, the, mitral the aortic valve opens. And there, this is where you see uh, three, which is your ejection period. And now the graph takes you back to the other side because now you're emptying, so your volume goes down. Um, and so um, you go from point C to point D, which is that the aortic valve opens at point C, closes at point D. And during the segment titled number three, which is our third segment, we have ejection period, which is our systole. So finally, at point D, the, the aortic valve is closed, and we have another isovolumic now relaxation, which is when the, the heart relaxes before point A, which is when the mitral valve now is going to open again, but there's still no volume change because now both valves are closed. But just like in the isovolumic contraction, now we have relaxation. So in summary, the lines that are relatively horizontal, line one and line three, represent your systole and your diastole. The first one you'll see is line one, where you have diastole. It's kind of easy to remember. In diastole, your left ventricle fills up, so it should be an upward-looking line. And you're going from left to right, and then, your dia and then your systole will be the point going from C to D, where you'll see your volume going backwards, so, going, so now the line going from right. So far, so good? Yeah, I think you did a very nice job with that. I will say, I spent a lot of time trying to memorize, just rote memorization, the lines and the points. But if you really understand that it's <clears throat> just a graph with an x-axis and y-axis, and you understand that one is volume and one is pressure, you just spend a little bit of time with it, and you walk it through exactly like you did, then you'll get it. And it's like not confusing ever again. That's what we're here for. <laughs> That's what. So, but, and I would say, if you're in the car right now, sometime re-listen to this while just looking at mm -hmm. the, the loop over and over and again. I think that would help. Yeah. So now let's look at four scenarios in which this 
graph is going to get shifted because of some form of physiologic or pathologic change. The first scenario is increase in preload, assuming constant afterload. What we're going to expect to see is almost like an expansion of our rectangle towards the right side. And the reason for that is because at the end of the day, point B, which is when the mitral valve closes, will just be displaced to the right. Because now, right, you were planning on closing the store at five, but more customers showed up, so you left the door open a bit longer. And so everything's shifting, everything is sort of being expanded to the right side. So you still start at point A, your point B is going to be much further to the right. Your segment number one, which is your filling period, which is your diastole, is going to increase um, because you have more volume. Your isovolumic contraction is not going to change. Your systole is going to be almost parallel to your diastole because you have to get all that blood out. And your isovolumic relaxation is going to stay the same. Next problem is you have an increase in preload with a change in afterload, which is a little bit more, re more realistic. So now in this case, the whole rectangle is going to be shifted to the right. Now with an increase in preload, there's an, there is a greater increase in blood ejected during systole. This will lead to the intraaortic pressure to be greater than <clears throat> the left ventricular pressure a little sooner. And so the aortic valve closes sooner and the end systolic volume will be slightly higher. And so what happens practically is that the point titled B, which is your closing of the mitral valve will happen later. And the point D, which is when the aortic valve is closing will happen sooner. And so that's why the whole cube is shifted to the right. Um, and the reason the cube wasn't shifted previously is because we assumed a constant afterload. But again, if you, if you pump more blood out, you're increasing your afterload over time, right? Because I mean, that there's, right? Unless you're actively, <laughs> whatever, I'm not, I'm not going to confuse people. Well, fine, moving on. Two more scenarios, which is a decrease in afterload, assuming that you have preload and contractility to be constant. So a decrease in afterload, like you're hemorrhaging. Okay, let's just have that example. And so what, um, so what happens there is that, so you'll have basically an earlier opening of the aortic valve, which is point C. Uh, so that point will actually be lower um, and will open at a lower left ventricular pressure um, because the intraventricular pressure reaches aortic pressure sooner. And so this is why the point will be a little bit lower on the graph. Um, because of um, lower afterload, stroke volume will also um, increase and the curve will move to the left. So the heart trying to compensate is going to start pumping much more blood. And so the amount of blood leaving during systole is going to increase. And so your, your box is going to be is going to be expanding a little bit towards the left. So you'll have a closure of the aortic valve, which will be sooner. So the, so the, so the, the height of the, of the rectangle will be smaller and it will be expanding to the left side. 
And then finally, we can have increased contractility, assuming preload and afterload are constant. And that is just um, both a, an increase in height and a shift and a, an increase of the cube towards the left side. So with improved contractility, uh, curve three, which is our systole, will move higher with an increase in contractility. There is an increase in stroke volume. So line four moves to the left because of that. And uh, yeah, and that's really a relationship of the increased stroke volume. Again, these are kind of hard to go over in the car and via audio, but just look at the graphs. They're pretty straightforward. <clears throat> All right. Okay. Frank, Star Frank Starling curve, and then we can do a question. You got it. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. So the Frank <coughs> Starling curve or the Frank oh, Starling curve. Oh, it's my turn. I thought you hated the Frank Starling curve. You said I was going to do that. That's fine. No, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Fine. I'm going to do Frank Starling. <laughs> okay. The Frank Starling principle describes the intrinsic ability of the heart to adapt to different blood volumes or preload, how much blood is coming into the heart. And as cardiac muscles stretched with an increasing amount of blood volume, contraction occurs with an increased force so that extra blood will be pumped out. So how does this work practically? So you get the increased left ventricular diastolic filling, which you talked about in the loops. The cardiac muscle stretches. They provide a greater force of contraction, which results in an increased stroke volume. So at baseline, cardiac muscle is not in the optimal position to create the greatest force of contraction, like when it's just sitting there at rest. But as the heart fills with an increase in preload and an increased stretch, there's more overlap between the thin and thick muscle filaments of the sarcomeres, which causes a, greatest, a greater force of contraction. And so we all learned this in physiology way back when. And they depict here um, the, the muscle filaments of the sarcomere. So at baseline, they're not aligned, like when the heart is not in a filled position. They're not aligned. But when the heart stretches, those thin and thick muscle filaments align with one another to provide a, a greater force. That is their kind of like preferred working position. So um, we know that we need enough preload but not too much preload to have them in optimal position. And for the test, but also oh, clinically, this results in these kind of um, volume curves um, that are, um, how would you describe them? They're like half moons, crescent moons um, of, of, of volume. Positive logarithmic curves. Fine. A positive logarithmic curves. <laughs> Is that even correct? I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but basically okay, what you have, works. what you have on the X axis is your left ventricular and diastolic volume. And as a reminder, your left ventricular and diastolic volume is the volume in the left ventricle at the end of the fillet. And on the Y axis, you have the stroke volume. So obviously there's this optimal position, but the point can change just depending on the left and diastolic volume, such that if you increased the left end diastolic volume, or you have more volume in the left ventricle at the end of filling, then your stroke volume 
will be increased. Okay, so it's like a positive correlation. So what does that what does that mean? So if you have changes in preload, um, this will alter the location along the curve. And like I said, an increase in left ventricular end diastolic volume will create a greater force of ventricular contraction and a larger stroke volume. So if we increase preload, then we'll move upward on the curve to a farther point. And if we decrease preload, then we'll move farther down the curve. So if we have left if we have less left ventricular end diastolic volume, we'll have a smaller stroke volume. So that's the easy one. We stay on the curve. Um, the curve was built for just changes in preload, basically. Yeah, that's so you're, the preload you're still, curve. You're still it, with changes in preload. You're just moving along the curve, either forward or backward. That's right. That's okay. right. With this correlation that the more end diastolic volume you have, the bigger the stroke volume. The less end diastolic volume you have, the lower the stroke volume. Can I, can I give you how I remember this? Since. Yeah, please. So I always I always uh, thought of the Frank Starling principle as like you trying to get out of a pool, right? Okay. So if you are in a pool that it doesn't have, that's quite shallow, right? Mm. You can easily grab on and lift yourself up and get out of mm -hmm. the pool, right? But now imagine you're in almost an empty pool that is very, very deep and you're basically holding onto the edge with your bare fingers. Um, it's almost, it requires a significant amount of force for you to lift yourself up by pulling all your weight up based on just from your the tip of your fingers and get yourself out, which is, I think is kind of similar to what the heart is trying to do. If that's right, the fibers are close together, which means like the the bottom of the pool is your feet are touching the bottom of the pool and the fibers are close together. It's easy to get out, but if you are extending that distance, then you're gonna have a lot more work to do. And so that's, and, and eventually, obviously, you reach a point of cardiac failure, which is that if, if that distance is too great, you're not even going to get out of the pool. Yeah, you're, you won't you're, even make it. Done. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. All right. This doesn't help me with this curve, but I understand the principle. <laughs> ah, we'll see. I'll, I'll tell you how it helps you with the curve I'll, I'll, as we okay. go through it. Fine. So that's with preload. You're on the curve, up and down, hanging out. But in contrast to preload, Changes in afterload will shift the entire curve. So you have this baseline curve, but if you change the afterload, you can go, you basically, the entire curve shifts upward with decreased afterload, or the entire curve shifts, shifts downward with increased afterload. So at a given preload, if there is an increase in afterload, systemic uh, stroke volume will decrease because the heart is then working against a greater resistance and the curve shifts down because if you remember our y-axis is stroke volume so if yeah. you have a so, regular so if, curve if you're blocking the outflow of the heart then less of right. the blood is going to come out i understand yeah so you have your regular curve and the curves are helpful but you don't really need the curves you know you have a regular curve and if you um, increase your afterload, you know you're going to have less stroke volume. So you know it's the lower curve. Okay? And because the stroke volume is less, there will then be more volume in the left ventricle at the end of diastole. So there will actually be a shift of the curve to the right. 
So the entire well, curve. I, I, I don't know. I mean, the curve is the curve. I think the point on the curve will both shift down Correct. and right. And to the right, if you right. increase the afterload. Yeah. yeah. And the reason I'm saying this is because I think that's how they frame those questions. They give you a point on the curve and they uh -huh. say, which point would it be on this new curve Correct. if there's a change in afterload? So it will go down. But as you said, because the end diastolic volume is going increase. to increase, yeah. it's down and to the right. Perfect. And then the opposite is true. If you have a decrease in afterload, the, so you have less pressure downstream, you know that the stroke volume is going to go up. So you've now moved to the higher curve, but you know that it will also, your point will shift to the left um, because you have a lower left ventricular end diastolic volume. Mm -hmm. Got it? Yeah, because you're, yeah, it's exactly right. Because your stroke volume is now increasing, so you're having less leftovers. And so, yeah, you're moving back that way. So up and to the left. Perfect. Now, the last uh, kind of physiologic change is changes in contractility. And so the curves are similar to the afterload curves, but in the opposite kind of direction. Um, so in contrast to changes in preload, changes in contractility, like I said, will shift the entire curve like they do in changes in afterload. If there's an increase in contractility, there will be a higher stroke volume for a given left ventricular end diastolic volume, and thus for increased contractility, the curve shifts up and to the left, or your point on the curve shifts up and to the left. Now, if there's a decrease in contractility, um, the curve will shift down and to the right. Mm -hmm. If a neonate with decreased contractility is then given an inotrope or an afterload-reducing agent, the curve will shift up and to the left, but it may not reach the normal curve unless the contractility normalizes. And this is another way they can present this on the test is yeah. by giving a medication um, to increase the contractility or to change the afterload or by making changes in preload and asking you to find the point mm -hmm. on the curve. But it should be easy to remember from the standpoint of if you are decreasing afterload, by default, you would also like to have increase in contractility. So while it's increase-decrease, there are opposite processes where, where a decrease in afterload, like your hemorrhaging, should lead to an increase in contractility to get more blood out. Um, so, that, so that should make sense why um, they are similar but not the same, obviously. So be careful which one they're testing you on. Is it right. an increase in afterload? Is it an increase in contractility? Because that will make a dramatic difference. Perfect. Okay, All I have right. a question for you. Go. Okay, cardiology question 18. A male infant born at 25 weeks now has a postmenstrual age of 38 weeks. He is currently receiving captopril for management of his hypertension. Which of the following physiologic changes occurs with the administration of this medication? It's not really a fair question. But anyways, A, afterload is reduced. B, stroke volume is decreased. C, the opening of the aortic valve is delayed. Or D, the opening of the pulmonary artery valve is delayed. Captopril, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. is given for hypertension. Mm -hmm. That's a good place for me to start. Right. That's there. right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, are these like calcium channel blockers? 
Ooh, good. I think so. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, but think, but thinking about it, right? I mean, I think that's no, that's a capt- no, April. April is an ACE inhibitor. ACE inhibitor. Oh, sorry, that's what I meant. Ooh, oh, my bad. What an <laughs> awful thing to say. Anyway, I will not edit that after that, that part out. <laughs> Just for the people who think. Who perpetuate the rumors that Daphna is uh, preaching that I edit my bad parts out? <laughs> um, all right, so it's an ACE inhibitor. But what's interesting about it is, that, right? So it acts, it acts distally, and I think because of that, uh, it leads to relaxation of the vessels, and so um, probably reducing afterload. Then, very good. Afterload is reduced. That's correct. Captopril is an antihypertensive medication that causes vasodilation and decreases afterload. And this relates to the curve this way. Because aortic pressure is reduced, the aortic valve opens sooner because the left intraventricular pressure reaches the aortic pressure earlier. And because the afterload is reduced, the stroke volume will increase as a greater volume can be pumped out by the left ventricle in the setting of lower systemic blood pressure. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, yeah. All right. All right. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. I'm lodipine. The dipines are the calcium channel blockers. Good God. Yeah, they have a bunch of, uh, uh what's it called? End, end yeah. downs yeah. for the calcium channel I'm blockers. Them. All right. See you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.